0: I invite you to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. While you turn there, I'm going to get out all of my paperweights uh, for the uh, the pages up here. Uh, Titus chapter 1. And I would reflect with you on uh, what Scripture says about itself. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says... For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so as we gather together today out in this field, the subject of our talk is scripture. That's what we'll be looking at in close detail, and that's what I encourage you to pay close attention to as I comment on Titus chapter 1, a passage that maybe I wouldn't have chosen for an outdoor service, but nonetheless, it is what God intends for us to hear uh, from God's Word today. We're going verse by verse through the book of Titus. It's been two weeks uh, since we were able to look at this book, and in Titus chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16 uh, this morning. If you remember, in Titus 1 and verse 5, Paul reminded Titus of two purposes that he had for leaving him on the island of Crete. Titus must, number one, appoint elders in every town on the city, and then two, he must straighten up what remains. And so two weeks ago, we considered a lengthy description that Paul gave Titus about what to look for in candidates for Elders. That is, in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, you have the qualifications for elders. If he's going to appoint elders, Titus, here's what you look for. You look for people who meet these criteria. But then starting in verse 10, the passage we'll look at today, through the rest of the body of this letter, Paul will begin to give Titus resources to straighten out the remaining things among the churches in the island of Crete. In particular, in big picture, what I think he's doing is he's giving further instructions about three subjects. Further instructions about addressing false teachers, dealing with them appropriately. That's chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Chapter 2 is further instructions about the home. He gives some household codes, how they are to behave in the home. And then chapter 3, how they are to behave outside of the home, especially verses 1 through 8 there in chapter 3, before returning to a final discussion of how to deal with false teachers in Titus 3, verses 9 and 10. That's the whole body of this short letter. Paul's giving Titus further instructions to help him about the remaining things. Now, this letter starts, and Paul's instructions start by addressing a, a very important subject, the most pressing threat against the churches on the island of Crete, and that is the threat of false teaching and false teachers. Paul has an urgent concern about numerous false teachers in Crete. And I think the serious nature of this problem can be seen in that he opens the body of the letter, Titus 1, verses 10 through 16, and he closes the body of the letter, Titus 3, verses 9 and 10, with serious instructions about false teachers. Now, his instructions in our passage in chapter 1 revolve around two commands. Because if you have your Bible, you look for the first command in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, These false teachers must be silenced. That's the first challenge he gives to Titus. You must silence them. And then the second command is found in the middle of verse 13. They must be rebuked sharply. And so the whole passage revolves around those two commands. You must silence them and rebuke them sharply. And around those, Paul gives various descriptions of these false teachers to uh, really solidify or verify the fact that Titus has to follow these commands. And so we'll look at both the commands and the reasons he gives today uh, on this beautiful day out in the field. And uh, we will consider them and then apply them to our own lives in the church. And so I've got a two-point outline. False teachers must be silenced. False teachers must be uh, sharply rebuked. Okay, very simple, following the two commands. Let's look at the first one. False teachers must be silenced. Look in your Bible at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And that's the end of the first section. And there are just a whole lot of questions we have here about what's going on in Crete and Paul's counsel to Titus. And so we need to look in here at these things a little bit more. First, we, we find out that there's some voices on the island that were polluting the pure truth of God's word in the gospel, and Paul says they must be stopped. Actually, it uses a rare word. It's translated here silenced, and this word is used of the reining in of horses. It's a word that's used by Philo with a sense of bridling. These teachers must be, you could translate, must be muzzled or bridled. Now, that's very strong language, right? You must shut their mouths, Titus. And it leaves us with a whole host of questions. I think one of the reasons why it's so severe is what he'll say about these false teachers later in the book. Uh, in, In this passage, he calls them brute beasts. Okay, so Paul is saying, you must rein in what these brute beasts are saying. And then he gives us more descriptions of these false teachers throughout and in this first half he gives three descriptions of them he says uh first you should rein them in or silence them because they are rebellious liars that's why I take verse 10 i think the first reason for silencing them comes in that that description those descriptions found in verse 10 where paul starts by saying there are many okay and that that should stun us or shock us a little bit right it's not that there are a few of these it's not that there're one or two of these on the island of crete they are numerous there are many of these false teachers polluting the church in Crete. And the first description he gives in verse 10, if you're looking there, there are many of them who are what? Look in your Bible there, verse 10. There are many who are, depending on what version you're reading, right? they're insubordinate, which literally means they are not subject to authority. They are independent agents who won't submit to any religious authority other than themselves unless it agrees with them. They are rebellious to religious authority. This word insubordinate, it's the same word that was used earlier in the chapter of what an elder's children must not be. They must not be insubordinate, unruly, and rebellious. And so at the roots of this false teaching that we're here to study in the field today is a refusal to submit to the spiritual authority that was laid up at that time in the apostles and the elders that they were appointing and setting in local churches throughout the island of Crete. They were refusing to submit to spiritual authority, rising above it themselves, claiming to be an authority. In our day, false teachers often fail to identify with any one local church. Colonial, if you find a ministry of a person in our world today that fails to identify with any one local church, you need to be very aware. You need to be very aware. Sometimes you can find out about these ministries as whatever the name of the person is, .com. Go to the internet, type in their name.com. That perhaps is an indication that they're under one authority, it's themselves. And if they do subject themselves to local church authority for any length of time, it's just for a short time until they move on to another or another. So, Paul says first they're insubordinate. Then in verse 10, he continues to describe them, and it doesn't get any better. They are empty talkers. You see that in verse 10? Empty talkers. Talkers. This is the same description that Paul told Timothy. He warned Timothy about in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 6. He says, A certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion. That word vain is similar. It's the same word here, empty. Okay, They're giving themselves to fruitless or empty discussions. One commentator said it this way, The opponents were teaching senseless babble words without meaning. So to take this and uh, just help you uh, maybe understand this text the way that I came to an understanding this this week is they basically talk about nothing, but they make you believe that it's the most important thing in the world. That if you if you don't get this, if you don't understand this thing. Then I mean, have you ever arrived? Are you even a believer? They're empty talkers. There perhaps is buzz around their teaching, but you can never fully grasp what they're saying. If that is true, men and women, believers, members of the Colonial Baptist Church, I'd say be, be aware. Be aware. They're empty talkers. Further, they're deceivers. Verse 10, this is a rare word used only in the New Testament that means that they were dis- misleading others. But then Paul gives us a clue... A little bit more of a clue about their identity in the last part of verse 10 when he says they're especially those of the circumcision party. Here we find out a little bit about their ethnicity, their religious background. On the island of Crete, he's addressing some sort of Jewish false teaching. says Jewish false teachers in mind who were perhaps boasting an external marks of their religion, certain markers of their covenant with God. Okay. They are of the circumcision sect or party. That's what these false teachers were. But without our attention, in this first mark in verse 10 is closed, there were many rebellious deceivers among the churches of Crete. But then he describes it again in verse 11. Uh, look at verse 11. "They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach." His second description, and the way I would take this upsetting whole families, is they are destroying whole house churches. Okay, first of all, we start with the word upsetting. It's, it's used as well in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 18. And it's used in that passage of some who were teaching that the future bodily resurrection of believers had already happened. Okay, so I read the middle of that verse, uh, 2 Timothy 2.18, it says, they are upsetting the faith of some. There, that false teaching, whatever Paul's addressing in Ephesus or or in Rome, was destroying or ruining some people. Here, it's even more significant. The effect is more significant in Titus. It's not just individuals. They're uh, upsetting whole people. Families. Now, the word family here could be translated households. And this may re- refer specifically to actual family units, or I think it might be an indication he's referring to house churches where most Christian instruction was being conducted on creed. In other words, the meeting places of early churches were in homes. And these false teachers were destroying whole family units, whole house churches. Then we learn even more about them. Uh, At their core, they're driven by teaching for personal ambition or wealth. Now, we don't know the exact situation here, but some kind of Jewish false teachers were polluting and corrupting whole families for their own gain. Perhaps they're saying something like this. If I can just get this whole little group together so that I can teach them how essential this little truth is that I've found, then we can all make much out of this and and become known, and I can become appreciated for my gifts and my theology, my contributions to the church. Or in our day, they might do something like this. They might try to bring their papers into our community groups or Bible studies thinking that it's their job to straighten out the doctrinal statement, the orthodox doctrinal statement of the church. May I tell you again, if that sort of thing happens, beware. Beware. They're upsetting whole families. You say, well, this is an unusual sermon for an outdoor service. Pastor, like, couldn't you like, think of anything a little bit more positive to say when we're in this public setting? I'll say, well, that's not my job. My, not, my job is not to just keep creating positive talks for you. My job is to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And maybe you don't appreciate that today, but someday hopefully you will. Someday you'll wake up and you'll say, thank God that he didn't entertain us. Thank God that he wasn't always spinning positive, inspirational little talks. Thank God that he told us what would ruin our households, what would ruin our church." So you have these descriptions of them. They are non-submissive liars, and they are destroyers of whole families. But then he adds in verses 12 and 13, a a third description of them. They follow corrupt cultural reasons and methods. That's why I take verses 12 and 13. I want to read it with you again. Because what he's saying here is uh, these false teachers, their methods do not divert from the basest uh, descriptions of the culture around them. Okay, so look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, Paul does something unusual here, right? He quotes from an external source outside of the Holy Scriptures. He quotes or cites a prophet of their own. Uh, most scholars believe the prophet's name was Epimenides. He lived several hundred years before Paul, but he was from the island of Crete. And Paul was aware of something that this prophet had said, The secular prophet who perhaps was also perceived as being a religious man by the islanders. I don't think Paul's point here is to... uh Comment on the nature of this anonymous prophet. He simply lists this Cretan's prophecy to make clear the reputation of the Cretans. Even one of their own says this about the Cretans. They're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And this is quite a reputation for them to have. Okay, I just want to point out a few things to you about that. I mean, as you're reading that, I hope that just kind of sticks out as it's being like this really scathing review. Here's some of the things I point out. First, it is an extensive statement. Cretans are always liars, beasts, and gluttons. This statement is not about a few of the culture, but is a comprehensive declaration about Cretans at all times. That's what Epimenides said. There are always these things. Second, the statement is scathing. You put these three descriptions together. It's not something you want to be called here at our church picnic because you're walking through the field. You are a liar, a brute beast, um, and a, a lazy belly or stomach. That's just not what you want to hear. And so these things are scathing. Uh, he says they're always liars. Of course. I told you in the intro sermon that this island was known for its lying. The inhabitants were known for its lying. This might have come, or this reputation originally, for how they continually lied about the origins of and the death of their patron god, by the way, fake god, Zeus. They said that Zeus was not only born on the island, he died on the island. That His, his burial spot was in a cave on the island. became an infamous lie that no one believed. But it also was, this reputation went further. As many early authors, as I just started looking outside of Scripture at some of the early authors, they were all, many of them were commenting on this. So, for instance, Polybius writes, the Cretans are the only people in the whole world in whose eyes no gain is disrespectful. That's another external source for you. He says, they're the only people like them. They'll do whatever they can do to gain things. Cicero said this about the Cretans. He said, uh, Cretans uh, regarded highway robbery as honorable. Even highway robbery is honorable. Perhaps you remember a uh, long time ago when we were studying 1 Corinthians and I said that the words too Corinthianized were coined to describe the very worst of immoral people, or uh, when people perform the most immoral deeds. The Corinthian people were famous for being immoral. But here, to Cretanize was to lie. The people of Crete were famous for being liars. But the reputation goes farther. They're also evil beasts. They're animal-like beings. The word beast was used of wild animals or brute beasts. And when used of human beings, it was not complementary. Speaks of people who uh, whose actions are based on their instincts alone. They're enslaved to their natural impulses like irrational animals. And so these false teachers follow their own natural instincts instead of spiritual impulses. This is another mark, I believe, of false teachers. It helps us identify them and helps us to beware as a church. They are impulsive and they act like irrational animals. And so men and women, members of Colonial, if we find a man or a woman who yells or is quick-tempered or who bullies his way to manipulate and twist things to get his way and refuses to submit to spiritual authorities in the church, then you may have found a false teacher. So what does a false teacher look like? You're just looking at all these descriptions. We may have, in that case, found a false teacher. They're brute beasts acting just on their own natural instincts, quick-tempered, right? Responding to it in the flesh and of themselves. Cretans are also known as being lazy gluttons. This is what Epimenides said, they're lazy gluttons, they're inactive or lazy stomachs i like how the king james translates this if you got that in front of you today it says that they were slow bellies slow bellies not talking about how slowly their you know ability to digest food is two descriptions they're lazy and they're all for their stomach or their bellies okay and so paul is I mean, with, with, with quoting Epimenides here, he, he is giving uh, this statement that's extensive and scathing, but but then finally, I think I would describe it as accurate. It's one thing for Paul to quote this source. It's another thing to say that he agrees with it completely. So at the beginning of verse 13, I think he's saying something like this. Epimenides is right. He's got it. He's right on. He diagnosed it right. The saying is trustworthy. Now... Why would Paul do that? And is, is, is he like being a little bit insensitive here ethnically or culturally? Is he trying to cancel, right, all Cretans? Is that what he's trying to do with this statement? Well, I think the answer to that is no. Of course, Paul's not trying to denigrate the whole society. The fact that he wants to reach them and seek them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, after he gets out of prison, I think one of the very first places he goes is to Crete because he wants them to see and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. He does not despise them. He does not think lowly of them. He wants to see the gospel win them. He loves their souls. I think he's just trying to denigrate them. But in context, if properly understood, what we have to keep in mind is the greater point that Paul is making here. Paul is linking the false teachers affecting the church with the basest elements of the Cretan culture. He acknowledges that these rebel false teachers epitomize the bestial Cretans, following after their own natural instincts and lying to get whatever they want or desire. Okay, and so... Because these teachers are rebellious liars, polluting whole churches, demonstrating base cultural methods, they must be stopped, Paul says. They must be muzzled. They must be silenced. But here, I'm reading this whole passage this week, and I'm trying to figure out, like, what is our takeaway? How how can I learn from this? And the big question I have that Paul doesn't really seem to answer here very clearly is, well, how do you do that? How do you stop the mouth of a false teacher? And yeah, I really wish he'd come right out and say it. Now, I think he gets there in this passage. But I think that there are perhaps other passages of Scripture that can help us here. And I want to suggest three ways we can silence false teachers, just very quickly. From other passages and then from this one as well as we get there. I think one of the ways we silence false teaching is by teachers is by taking away their teaching opportunities. That is, we give them no platform, no opportunity to teach. We take away the privilege of teaching from them. We give no opportunities for these false teachers to teach or preach in the pulpit or in Bible studies. The church in America today should not give them teaching positions in any church or seminary or Bible college either. We should not let them lead community groups. We should not, most certainly should not publish their books or read their books if Christian, Christian publishers refuse to censor them. Yet in our day, we do not do this with false teachers. No, what we do is we put them on TV. We publish their books because they're novel and hip. They've got something new to say. They appeal to people, to young people, to all people. And so we promote them. That's what the church in America does today. Instead, Paul says we must silence them. And I think one of the ways we can do this is by not giving them any opportunity to teach. We can also silence them, number two, by refuting their teaching with Scripture. We should consider their false teaching from the perspective of truth and then refute it, showing how it doesn't measure up. We should give ourselves to studying Scripture and correcting these false teachers with clear biblical arguments and theology. That's one way you can silence them, is just to use the Scripture and show people that what they're saying doesn't hold true to Scripture. Silence them by sharply rebuking them. And that's where this passage is heading. That's where Paul's going to go with Titus. We can silence them by sharply rebuking them, perhaps through church discipline or removal from the church fellowship. In a parallel passage in 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 through 18, Paul even names the false teachers who were impacting either the church at Ephesus or Rome. 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. Perhaps you remember this. It says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And so in some cases, it will be necessary to rebuke others. That is what Paul commands That's the command that Paul gives Titus in the middle of verse 13. So I want to look at the second half with you. And we'll go quickly through this. Look at the middle of verse 13 through 16. We we must not only silence them, we must sharply rebuke them. Look at verse 13. This testimony is true, and this is where it starts. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Like, read this passage, you're like, Paul, I feel like you're kind of holding back a little bit. Like, tell me what you really think about these false teachers. Well, here, the responsibility is to sharply rebuke them course, one of the reasons Titus was to appoint elders on, in every town in the island of Crete was so that they could use Scripture to rebuke false teachers, but they're not the only ones that are supposed to do it. Titus himself, as an apostle delegate of the uh, Apostle Paul, is to rebuke them, and Paul adds an adverb here, you're to rebuke them sharply, which means rigorously or severely, And so men and women who pray in the church should not be dealt with delicately. We must not engage in patient dialogue with them or peaceful arbitration to work out an agreement. Paul does not tell Titus to coexist with them in the church or to tolerate their teaching in the church. No, he must deal with them severely. He must rebuke them sharply. I think that Paul knew that preserving the truth of the gospel was the most important thing. It was critical. And so Titus cannot back away in this moment. He needs to stand and he needs to fight. After this command, uh, Paul gives him a few other important things. And one is a purpose for doing this with these false teachers. And and then he gives two further descriptions. Uh, The purpose is in the middle of verse 13 and 14. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Here's the purpose, that they may be sound in the faith. Okay, so Paul does not just want Titus to annihilate them in order to punish them. Instead, he wants them to rebuke them sharply in order to rescue them from their error. Earlier in the book, we we learned about sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, And here his concern is for sound faith. Because they were rejecting the sound teaching of the scripture, they were unhealthy in their faith. And so Paul wants uh, Titus to do this to help them. So they'd also avoid Jewish myths and the commandments of men. I won't take too much time out in the field to describe that, but unfortunately this became true of much of Judaism in the first century they rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they started becoming obsessed with all these minute little speculative exegesis. Just read their early documents. You can see this. They're mysticizing numbers. They're going on and on about all of these odd, weird explanations, and they become obsessed with commandments, they say, that are from God. They add a whole type of instruction called the oral law, where they just keep adding one commandment onto another, onto another, onto another, onto another, become obsessed with these things. Now, uh, in his further descriptions of them in verses 15 and 16, I think he describes them in two ways. They are completely self-deceived, and they are incapable of producing good. Verse 15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Because these false teachers had rejected Jesus and were drawn to Jewish ceremonial practices of being clean and unclean. They became a people who were incapable of producing anything that God would approve of. In verse 16, he He helps us by telling us they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. He Basically, says, if you look really carefully at their life or their marriage or their children, you will see that they're not real and genuine. He says, we're trying to diagnose whether someone is a false teacher and impacting the church. I think we have to look very carefully at their life. One of the things you could do is you could go through the list of qualifications of elders in the church. These are false teachers claiming to be spiritual authorities. Does their life match up to those? Does their life match up to these things? He then says they are detestable in verse 16. That's scathing. And the synonyms I could give you, uh, don't make it much, e- it's not an easier pill to swallow. They are despicable or abominable. Again, Paul, tell us what you think about these people. This word, uh, for, uh, this, this detestable is often used in the Old Testament to describe things that were abominable in God's sight. So can you imagine the irony here? These Jewish false teachers claim to be expert in the the Jewish ceremonial laws of what is clean and what is unclean. And Paul says about them, they are abominable. It's like worse than unclean. They're abominable in God's eyes. And he says they're disobedient and finally unfit for any good work. This demonstrates just how bad things are with these false teachers. In their present condition, they can do nothing, nothing that pleases God. And so we've worked our way through this text, a very important text to us. It's addressed to the leader of churches and the churches themselves on the island of Crete. They must silence and rebuke false teachers because these false teachers swerve away from the gospel and the scriptures. We too must be ready to do this. False teachers no doubt have influenced Colonial Baptist Church in our past, and they would do so in our future. Just this past week, the pastors were made aware of someone who might be attempting to influence our church through false teaching that rejects the deity of Jesus Christ. We must be prepared. We must stand. We must silence. And we must sharply rebuke anyone who denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone who would cultivate and teach something for their own shameful gain, anyone whose life does not match the Scripture. And we must do this for the glory of God, so that, Lord willing, that person will repent and come to a knowledge of the truth of Scripture. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we close this part of the service. Lord, I thank you for what we see in your word. I thank you for the clear instructions to Titus. False teachers must be silenced. And we must rebuke them sharply. Lord, give us wisdom in doing this. Help us not to ever rebuke someone sharply or silence someone who just simply disagrees with us or doesn't like us. But Lord, may we compare these descriptions in this text to anyone we would ever think of censoring and I pray that you would lead us in our leadership if, if in those moments where we have to do this where we have to stand and fight for the truth of the gospel, that we'd be willing to do that and that we would do that with clarity and conviction, knowing that the gospel's so important. Lord, give us wisdom. And then, Lord, I pray for our church. I know that our church is being influenced by false theologies and false doctrines, false religions even. Satan would love to get us to depart from a biblical understanding of truth. And so, Lord, again, I pray a shepherd's prayer that I pray often for our people. Lord, please protect us from false teachers, from their influence. Give us wisdom in knowing how to stand and to protect every member of our church against these things. Protect our children from the influence of teaching that's off, that would destroy them protect us from false teaching that would ruin whole families, just destroy them, upset them completely and entirely. And I pray that you protect our church from this and help us as we have influence to stand against this sort of thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.